What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast. I never am good with the episode numbers. I never remember. But anyway, point being, we're not a very new podcast anymore. Uh, but for those of you listening, you know, tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here in the podcast is I bring an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, you know, something uh, on something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Joel Selvin. And Joel Selvin is a music critic and author who had a weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle from 1972 to 2009 and has had his work featured in such outlets as Rolling Stone, the Los Angeles Times, Melody Maker, Billboard, among many others. And he's the author of many books and was a previous guest on this show for his last one, which was Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise, uh, which was a rad book and you should definitely check out. Uh, but he's back with us today to discuss his latest one, or semi-latest one, I know. Sly and the Family Stone, an oral history, uh, which was originally published back in 1998, uh, but was recently made available again in paperback by Permuted Press. So that's the book we're going to be talking about today. So, uh, Mr. Selvin, thank you so, so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right, so... Um, so what made you want to do this book originally back in the 90s? Uh, what was the genesis of it, and uh, why now uh, to get it back in print? Well, uh, the original uh, genesis, as you call it, uh, <laughs> the uh, it was an assignment. It was part of a series of books that were supposed to sweep out dusty corners of rock music history in oral history fashion. Now, that's not said in leap at the opportunity to do an oral history on Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, I'd long, long, long been, you know, intensely aware of that uh, act. I knew uh, Sly as a disc jockey uh, on R&B stations in the San Francisco Bay Area before I, uh, there was a Sly and the Family Stone. And I remember vividly the first time I heard dance to the music on the radio uh, as a college newspaper reporter, I was subjected to an ordeal that was supposed to be an interview with Sly Stone and some of the band members. So I've been <laughs> around the scene and, 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 and drank it in mm -hmm. as an audience member and all that for since the beginning, since Frenchies and Hayward uh, and uh, the opportunity to do this, Oh, I, I just uh, grabbed it, and, and it was a relatively small sum of money that I was being paid, and I just I, I just blew it all on travel and expenses and, and, and chased down this story kind of obsessively. 
Uh, spent a week in Hawaii doing interviews. That mm. was really painful. Uh, <laughs> and uh, bounced in and out of L.A. a number of times. The key to the book was locating one Hamp Banks. Hamp de Bubba de Banks. Mm. And Hamp was a, I, I mean, the, Hamp cat. was a pimp. Yeah. yeah, he was a street guy. He was a ghetto dude, uh, ex-Marine hairdresser and, you know, pimp uh, who knew Sly as a, a young man. And uh, Sly kind of aspired to his urban cool uh, when Hamp had to go away for a little while. And then when he came back on the scene, um, Sly had already been to Woodstock. And was living in Los Angeles, and, and Hamp just moved in to the bedroom next to Sly's. And from there on out, if you wanted to talk to Sly, you had to ask Hamp. Uh, and Hamp, nobody had ever asked him about his time with Sly, and he was avidly interested in sharing his experience. And he became like a co-conspirator. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, digging up all these other gangsters and, and doing the uh, uh, setting me up with interviews with these guys, uh, some of whom I didn't even know who they were before I uh, started talking to them. And the other thing was that although I had talked to the surviving members of the group before, once I had talked to Hamp and his associates and gotten a sort of more widescreen story, mm -hmm. I circled back with the band members and they were like, oh, well, yeah, that did happen. So <laughs> it was an extraordinary bit of, uh, of research. And uh, Hamp was just an amazing cat. Uh, we became very close friends. I spoke at his funeral last year. And, uh, he, he, you know, I, I used to get these long emails from Hamp without any capital letters or punctuation. And every one of them was signed, Your Friend for Life. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the kind of guy he was. Mm. So when I made a deal to republish this, I changed the dedication. And it now is dedicated to Hamp, to mm. Bubba, to Banks. Who was it originally dedicated to? It was dedicated to Sylvester. I said, oh, okay. Syl Sylvester, everyone misses you and sends their love. Yeah. Um, it's kind of... It, the book doesn't get that far. In, I mean, it, it basically ends in 75, 76 with the dissolution of the of the original lineup of the Family Stone. But, it, I mean, it doesn't get into where Sly is going to go the next, you know, 40 years. Well, you know, that's a, downward, yeah. that, that's a downward spiral of kind of amazing proportions. What what, what we, we take off in, what, 1976? Mm -hmm. And by 1991, uh, he's under arrest as a fugitive from justice, living under an assumed name for like 18 months and, and, and trying to avoid uh, arrest on a bench warrant out of Los Angeles and a drug bust. I mean, it was just a pathetic Dostoevskian descent into a, a nightmare of a life. And frankly, uh, I, it's, it's, it's enough of a nadir where we stop. Yeah, yeah. No, I, but I was looking at uh, Wikipedia because I know he's become something of a recluse or uh, off the grid kind of figure. 
And the latest they really had any information on was in like 2011, he was living in a Winnebago, uh, and there was this like couple, uh, basically in the house next to like where he parks his Winnebago that, you know, brings him food and lets him like shower in their house, like once or twice a week, something like that. But I mean, that's really like it, like in the last decade, <laughs> I don't know. I can bring you up to date a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but that Winnebago thing is by choice. Mm-hmm. He he likes the RV lifestyle, and when uh, uh, he, he won a law case a few years back that's been under appeal now, uh, and the lawyers that were um, uh, fronting for that case uh, had him parked in their driveway out in San Fernando Valley, I think. Uh, that's where he was living, and they were trying to. Uh, arrange a book project as a uh, uh they had him in rehab and they're trying to arrange a book project uh to uh for him to have something to do when he got out of rehab and i ended up on the phone with him a couple times talking about the possibility of doing a book it never worked out at that point mm-hmm. however sometime subsequently it did work out and uh ben greenman who's done extraordinary uh work with um autobiographies of brian wilson and yeah. george clinton right has finished a Sly Stone autobiography. It's going to be published uh, next year by Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. But, um, yeah, so I guess we should, uh, or you should, um, really, uh, for people who aren't familiar or, you know, who have probably just heard maybe the, uh, you know, everyday people or dance to the music, something like that, the stuff that's on the radio, um, why don't you tell everybody about the importance of Sly and the Family Stone and of Sly Stone himself, Sylvester Stewart himself, as a really unique, um, I mean, musical genius, I mean, for lack of any better terms. I mean, as you say in the book, I mean, it's, uh, black music and Sly Stone, it's sort of like a B.C. A.D. thing, right? You know, there's there's black music before Sly Stone and then there's black music after Sly Stone and it's like a completely different direction. Yes, it was a pivot point. There's no question about that. It's so obvious in the, in, in the from the this distance, although it was obvious at the time. Uh, Sly had a unique vision for music that pulled together both musical, cultural, social, and political elements that was sort of in the ether at that time and fused them. Uh, his early experiments were uh, uh, like a little off the mark, but he quickly dialed it in. One album, two album, three album, one third album was Stand with Everyday People and I Want to Take You Higher. Uh, and it was perfectly timed for the zeitgeist of the era. Uh, but like I said, it was a pivot point. And, and once that concept, once his vision had been introduced... It had ramifications broadly throughout the uh, music world, especially among black music. For instance, it transformed the sound of Motown, something that had not been uh, uh, touched by outside influences at all before. And suddenly you have the temptations doing Papa Was a Rolling Stone. But that's not the that's the least of it. Uh, The Sly Stone thing 
reached into the jazz world. Uh, uh, Miles Davis began to be very affected by it. Uh, the On the Corner album is, is his sort of reflection on the Sly and the Family Stone thing. And Herbie Hancock uh, was completely transmogrified by it. Uh, Headhunters, his album that is still to this day the biggest selling jazz album in history, mm-hmm. actually contains a track on it titled Sly, in case you were wondering where he got all this inspiration. So yeah, the, 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 it was just a huge turning point. And of course, it also was a point where the blending of, of, of racial lines, uh, you couldn't tell whose audience it was. Was it for white people or was it for black people? Because he had avid and enthusiastic followings in both. And for different reasons, it's like the movie Blazing Saddles. I mean, you know, there's a whole different set of jokes for black people in that movie mm-hmm. uh, than there is for white people. And, and and likewise with Sly's music, like the black audience was resonating to certain uh, subtexts and and themes that went just beyond the the white people. And uh, and but they there, there was plenty for the white audience too. I mean, he ripped up Woodstock. Like nobody's business, like nobody else except perhaps Hendrix. He was the king of Woodstock, and 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 that was a transformative experience for Sly and the band. After yeah. that, they were never the same. Yeah, everybody, uh, at least with uh, Sly and the Family Stone at Woodstock, they're playing on the 17th, of, so the second day of the festival, so everybody was still there. Uh, by the time Hendrix went on, because he was the last dude uh, at Woodstock, most <laughs> Most of the, most everybody had enough uh, rain and mud and you know bad acid and all that stuff and there was only like eighty thousand people left when uh, when uh, Hendrix performed uh, Woodstock. Like if you look at the crowds and stuff, like most of the people already have already split. So but so the full like you know half a million people really saw uh, that uh, that Sly and the Family Stone performance, even though it went on at uh, you know started at three thirty in the morning or something like that. But um, yeah, so anyway, um, let's get into, before we get into the band itself, I guess his background, uh, his early life. He's, um, you know, he's born into a very musical family, and in his musical background, uh, you know, just like just about every black performer of that period, uh, his musical background came from the church. Well, in this case, it was... Um... Seventh-day Adventist, which yeah. is a very uh, restrictive sort of splinter uh, uh, group, uh, was very clannish. Sly was never out of the little family bubble as a youth. Uh, he performed in a family gospel group, the Stewart Family Four or something like that, uh, and associated socially and, and um, family groups exclusively inside the church, both in Vallejo, California, where he grew up, and Fort Worth, Texas, where there was um, family. And uh, they bounced back and forth between those two places. Father was a janitor. Uh, I don't think Casey had any appreciable musical talent, and I know Alpha, his mother, didn't, but they brought the family up to 
playing music. Older sister Loretta was the piano player, and uh, Rose, sister Rose, had a strong voice, but none of them had the charisma or the character of, of, of Sylvester, who's quickly known as Sly. And he had a, uh, you, you know, a marvelous upbringing in, in that little, you know, bosom of the church. Uh, he was loved, he was uh, uh, nourished, he was uh, uh, made to feel special. Uh, as, he, as he grew out in the music world, uh, he had a vision sort of beyond the uh, typical uh, ghetto dweller of the day, uh, Vallejo being a little bit more of a mixed community than, say, if he'd been growing up in Oakland. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was in a doo-wop group that had both he was the only black member of the doo-wop group but it also had males and females in it so that was the viscanes and right at the beginning of his career yellow moon was their little single uh he was involved in this multi-racial by uh, uh gender uh, uh format and it was tom big daddy donahue who was a kingpin kya disc jockey uh, in San Francisco, who ran across this Yellow Moon record and Sly at a uh, uh, sock hop. And he recognized Sly's talent and put him to work as a songwriter and record producer at age 19. Mm -hmm. And Sly came up with a big hit record called Come On and Swim with Bobby Freeman, who had been a sort of long-standing San Francisco R&B artist of, uh, with... Um, uh, 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 do you want to dance? I think was about yeah. 1958 hit. Anyway, uh, Bobby Freeman, 1962, Sly back on the scene with the royalties. He bought his uh, a house in San Francisco and moved his parents out of Vallejo and took a, the basement over the basement apartment and continued to produce records for uh, Tom Donahue's uh, record label, Autumn Records. The Bo Brummels, Laugh Laugh, mm -hmm. was a big hit. The Mojo Men, Dance With Me. There's some Sly records on Autumn. Yeah. It was all sort of a uh, early Beatles, 1964-type uh, sound. And Sly had a Beatles haircut and uh, wore Beatle boots and was uh, very much in the, the rock and roll world, not just a soul singer, R&B guy, although he, he hung out in that field, too. Mm. Very close friends at that point in his career with the keyboard player in the Ray Charles Orchestra, uh, young Billy Preston. And they got on the radio and was doing a, a, a disc jockey thing, uh, which worked out very well for him. He was very popular. He had a great line of jive. He played Beatles records. He played Lord Buckley on what was titularly a soul station. Uh, meanwhile, he's had sort of ordinary bands that he played after his uh, air shift on the radio. He would go out to, you know, midnight and, and till two, uh, you know, sing in the midnight hour with some sort of ordinary type soul band. But in the back of his mind, there was something going on. And he was there in San Francisco. He was aware of all the things that were going on with the acid rock bands. And in fact, uh, the last Thing he produced for Tom Donahue's record label was a hippie band called Great Society, which had a female singer named Grace Slick. And uh, mm -hmm. Sly 
took them in the studio and did the first version of Somebody to Love in 1965, which, of course, two years later would be a top 10 record for Jefferson Airplane when Grace Slick belonged to that band. So yeah. he had his you know, fingertips in that San Francisco <clears throat> thing, although he was really more remote from that and more into a, a rhythm and blues kind of world. And when he put together Sly and the Family Stone in his parents' basement apartment, it was very deliberately cast. He brought his brother in on guitar. He brought his sister in on vocals. Although she was like, nah, you know, she had a job at the bank and, you know, was pretty dubious about it. Uh, but he cast this thing. His buddy Jerry Martini was a white saxophone player. And he knew Cynthia Robinson, female trumpet player uh, from Sacramento. And he got Gregorico, a white drummer, which was a kind of an anti-cliche because it, it was integration was not a big factor of rock and roll bands. But if you were going to have an integrated band, a black drummer was signed up okay because, you know, they had natural rhythm. So <laughs> that black drummer was a thing. And Sly inverted that, had the white drummer. Uh, and all this was very conscious, putting together this sort of modern facing set of musicians. Yeah, it's and an intentional then, plan. Absolutely. And and dressing them in a certain way, giving them a certain look. Uh, they shopped at the same mod clothing store that Jefferson Airplane did. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, he, he had this whole vision of what Sly and the Family Stone was going to be. The Larry Graham thing was the only real outsider that he brought into the band. That was somebody that he was turned on to by a mutual acquaintance. And Larry uh, played with his mother. He was a mama's boy. His mother played piano like Errol Garner and sang like Dinah Washington. And the Del Graham trio worked like five, six nights a week. And, and, and because it was just Larry and his mother originally, he developed this kind of peculiar style on the bass using his thumb to pop the bass strings. And when Sly heard that, he realized he could incorporate it in this new sound that he was imagining. So that was this original Sly and the Family Stone. The first couple of albums were kind of experimental, although Dance to the Music was a big hit, and it certainly introduced the sort of novel kind of rhythm and blues that nobody had ever heard anything like that before. Uh, with Stand, he broke through in Top 40 Radio. Uh, Everyday People was a huge hit. That brought them to the Fillmore East as an opening act for the Jimi Hendrix experience. That was a, another turning point in their career where the band came to realize what they could do as a live act. And uh, that led the way to them becoming this starring attraction at Woodstock. After that, of course, Sly had achieved his aspirations, began surrounding himself with gangsters and criminals, dove into a, a, a pile of drugs and a Hollywood uh, a depraved lifestyle uh, and started canceling concerts while the house was seated. Uh, and and pretty much tried to undermine and destroy his career as intentionally as anybody could. 18 months later, out comes there's a riot going on. And I always think of, of, of the Stand album as being just below the peak of his 
bell curve. And there's a riot going on being just below the peak, where the peak for me is the release of the single between those two albums. Thank you for letting me be myself again, which is the most amazing one chord song in pop music history. <laughs> and uh, But there's a, a riot going on was recorded in complete chaos, total drug-addled uh, atmosphere in the attic of a, of, of a Beverly Hills mansion that had been built for Jeanette McDonald in a secret studio that had, was, was accessed by a, a, a bookcase that you had to swing open to go up the secret passageway. Up there, there were no clocks. There was no time. It was a, uh, there were no windows. You just like a casino. made music <laughs> days on end. And the drugs flowed, and there were very few members of the band involved, but there were a large group of other musicians involved. Ike Turner was there, Billy Preston was there, uh, Bobby Womack was mm -hmm. all over that stuff, Miles was there a little. Uh, in, in fact, the single, Greg Rico and I spent an afternoon in my record library listening to that album, trying to find his drum playing on it. And we did find a little, but not much, because if Sly wasn't playing the drums himself, he was using a, a, a primitive early drum, um, machine, yeah. drum machine called Rhythm King, or Rhythm Ace. And the, the single, the hit single from that album, Family Affair, that's Sly, a Rhythm Ace, Sister Rose, and Billy Preston. There are no other members of the band on that track. And and that's about the time when Greg uh, Arico quit uh, the band and, and, and was replaced by Andy Newmark uh, eventually. But uh, the, the, that that's sort of like the, the whole thing starts to unravel there. And it's a slow and, and painful and, and, and truly uh, uh, gothic degeneration. Yeah. Uh, just backtracking a little bit. Um... Because uh, he sort of went through like the whole arc of his, or up until his peak, uh, that that really that 69, 1970, 71 peak he had um, artistically. But uh, you mentioned you know he was the uh, sort of in-house band leader and producer at Autumn Records, and you know producing the Bo Brummels and Bobby Freeman and the Great Society. Uh, he also I don't know if he produced it, but he was one of the engineers on the one of the first studio sessions by the Grateful Dead or what will be the Grateful Dead. They, I think they were going by the emergency crew at the time. I think that was their name. Between I the don't Warlocks. think Sly was involved in those sessions. That was, that was a, a, a very experimental session. Uh, and I think that's just Donahue and Mitchell. It's just Donahue. Okay. And, uh, and, and Leo Degar Kolka would have been the engineer. Okay. All he right, was but, the owner of the studio. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, back to San Francisco. In... They do early morning rain. Right. Yeah. The uh, Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But back to San Francisco in that time period. That's '65. That 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 burgeoning scene in San Francisco in 1965 and early '66. The one that's going to explode on the national consciousness in 1967. But everyone who was sort of in that sort of hippie scene says like the real summer of love actually was in 66 before like all the out-of-towners got in and sort of overwhelmed the, the neighborhood and everything but 
Uh, talk about, the, if you could, talk a little bit about that scene in San Francisco in 65 and 66, before it's really on the national consciousness. And that Sly, and um, it's before the band is together, but you know, he's starting to put the pieces together, and he's sort of tangentially involved in that, in that whole scene. So I don't know how Sly, uh, yeah, tangentially. The, Sly uh, uh, came out of the uh, Broadway uh, go-go scene of 63 and 64 uh, and 65. Uh, Bobby Freeman was a, a performer on Broadway. Sly did gigs on Broadway. And that was a very, like, pre-Beatles rock and roll thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the big headliners were... Uh, a kind of black righteous brothers called uh, George and Teddy and Jerry Martini was their sax player. Uh, and, and that was the, the, the scene that Donahue and Mitchell, the owners of Autumn Records, were kind of drawing from. The hippie thing started to happen in separate neighborhoods uh, at the same time in 65. In but uh, these guys were a little remote from that. Uh, the Great Society was the last band to uh be tried be recorded for autumn records it was already like failing uh, uh project at that point and sly did not get along with the band at all he put them through the ringer trying to get a take that he thought was acceptable in the studio and he just didn't get it what what they were doing uh, the record did come out but it, it, it got no attention Mm -hmm. uh, which was not true of most of the autumn releases since the owners of the label were the two top disc jockeys in town. They were perfectly yeah. happy to play their own records, but this one just, just fizzled completely. So I'm not sure that those guys were really on top of the psychedelic scene. Uh, Donahue Don and Mitchell both quit the uh, AM radio and spent a lot of time in 1966 uh, taking LSD and drinking cocktails at, at, at Enrico's which was a bar on Broadway. Um, they owned a, a, the, a, a nightclub called Mothers that was considered itself the first psychedelic nightclub. It wasn't too terribly psychedelic, but the birds played there, Love and Spoonful, all those 1965 bands as they came through town, they, they, they were at the club. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of like the, 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 the transitional period. What was happening at the Avalon and Fillmore ballrooms uh, with the... Um, hippie crowd, the Haight-Ashbury bunch, w was kind of a folk cultural movement that was uh, 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 kind of outside of the, the, this rock and roll scene that those mm -hmm. guys have been growing up. And Sly was aware of it and uh, obviously knew some parts of it. Uh, and as he put his Sly and the Family Stone together, uh, he incorporated elements of it. But Sly and the Family Stone was never part of that physical scene. Right. They Their early gigs were more in suburban areas like Redwood City, which is, eh, you know, 40 miles south of San Francisco, or San Jose, or Hayward, sort of outlying areas. Uh, sort of like where, CCR would later on, a little bit later on. Yeah, CCR uh, it w was uh, coming out of that area into yeah. San Francisco. These guys... There was a car culture. It was people still had grease in their hair. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, um, uh, you know, 
uh, bikers. The the one clubs that they played there was called Losers South in San Jose, and that was a a, a biker bar. Frenchies in Hayward was another Sly and the Family Stone uh, uh, stronghold, and and Frenchies was had a big parking lot, and people drove from all over the remote East Bay to go there. Uh, but the 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 key Sly and the Family Stone venue in their early days was Winchester Cathedral, which was an uh, after-hours club, and they played literally until 6 in the morning there. And that's uh, where they get picked up and signed by Epic, right? They get seen That's there. where David Kapolik saw them. Um, <clears throat> Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead saw them there. He said it was like tribal. Uh, and uh, all the, the, the tricks and entertainment devices and showmanship that would later become a big part of the Sly and the Family Stone deal that was all tried out at Winchester Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the name Sly Stone, did he adopt that when he became a DJ? That name, that persona, was that sort of like his DJ name? Or, or was he going by that even before he was a DJ? No, Stone was the DJ thing. Sly was a childhood nickname. I yeah. think anybody named Sylvester is called sure. Sly. But uh, he was Sly Stewart uh, and Sylvester Stewart at Autumn Records. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, like I said, they get signed to Epic. The first album comes out in the fall of 67, October 67. That's a whole new thing. Uh, Reviews well. Musicians really dig it, too. uh, But it doesn't sell very well. So uh, Clive Davis, who's the uh, uh, sort of the I don't think he's the head of Columbia, but he's high up in in the, the Columbia hierarchy at the time basically orders them to do some more commercial stuff that they can sell for the next record. Um, that's when they do uh, Dance to the Music, which you mentioned earlier, which uh, comes out, uh, which is released in November 67. And then afterward, this is the this is the song that's going to break them nationally. It's a huge hit. You know, it goes top 10 both R&B and on the top 100 charts. It's, you know, it's one of the most important tracks of the whole decade. But the but Sly and the band all hated it. They thought that song was just commercial shit, really. I mean, you know that they had to. It do. was a it was an extension of Winchester, Winchester Cathedral stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and and they had a whole routine uh, built around these sort of um, ad lib introductions. Uh, that that I mean the, the band marched out of the dressing room playing instruments and then picked up the instruments on the stage and started playing and they tended to to perform in medley Mm -hmm. and so dance to the music was sort of an adaptation of of an introduction that was part of the whole winchester cathedral deal yeah so uh so then that charts and then they're they start to get nationally known and then they do a couple more uh, LPs that uh, both come out in 68, about five months apart. That's the Dance of the Music LP and the Life LP. And they don't sell particularly well, uh, but they're still getting noticed. And then Everyday People, um, the single comes out late 68, I think again, November 68. And this one's even an even bigger smash than Dance of the Music. It goes number one, uh, stays number one for a month. You know, it's probably the band's most well-known song and really from there from the release of that single um in late 68 all through 1969 1969 is really sort of the band's uh, probably you could say the peak 
of the band um, itself, you know, coming off Everyday People, and then the Stand uh, album is released in May. That sells like three million copies, something like that. It's on, you know, it's one of the records on Rolling Stones top 500 records of all time for you know whatever significance you put into that uh you know the library of congress has preserved it in the national recording registry because of its registry because of its uh, artistic significance its cultural and historical significance then he releases hot fun in the summertime in july that goes to number two they play a bunch of festivals like you said that year they start a riot in newport and they have to like, shut down the newport jazz festival for a few years after that uh, as you said, they tear the house down in Woodstock, and then, you know, thank you for letting me be myself again. That and with everybody as a star, as a B-side, which is another great song, that gets released in December. That goes number one. That goes gold. So 1969 is that the year where they sort of just take over everything. But like you said, by 69 the cracks are are starting to show. You know, in the book it. By early 68, cocaine has already entered the picture. Uh, and then uh, in the book, you know, once Sly moves to L.A., the band sort of follows him down there. And that's where basically everyone seems to agree that where things really started to change with him after he moves to L.A. And then he starts doing, uh, you know, tons of PCP and stuff. And then all these sort of outsiders and hangers-on get sort of their clutches into him and... Um, and then it starts going downhill very fast, very quickly. Although there's still going to be some artistic achievements after, like you, uh, like you said, the, there's a riot going on. But that that album doesn't come out. Uh, I think it's like 18, 19, 20 months uh, be, between the release yeah. of songs, something like that. That um, so. But once yep. he gets to L.A. and once you know he gets down there in '69, the, the wheels start coming off the bus very, very quickly. And he oh, gets, it, uh, it's a, a, a incredible scene. Uh, to me, uh, it was kind of like a Shakespearean uh, royal court that was deranged and drug-addled. Uh, uh, the surrounding himself with family members, with gangsters, with criminals, with you, you name it and helping himself to anything that he wanted to, including, like, not doing whatever uh, he wanted to. But, you know, not going to that concert tonight, you know? I don't yeah. care if it's sold out. Uh, and it, it, it became this extraordinary battle of ego versus the prospects of success. And Sly's ego just was just beyond all boundaries, uh, he was the controlling influence on everything in his circle, and his agenda was obscure, but total. And mm. uh, yeah, the Coldwater Canyon place. I was up there uh, to do an interview for my college newspaper, and it was filled with huge dogs and uh, black and white furnishings and black and white uh, 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 decorations. It was all done in. You know, black, white, and then there was uh, uh, red and black, red and black and white. Uh, mm -hmm. And Sly was uh, uh, just absolutely as, as as high as you could be. He'd been smoking PCP, and and uh, the the uh, it was just yeah, it was dog shit everywhere. 
<laughs> yeah, you mentioned um, he starts missing gigs, and uh, you know he becomes notorious for this. He's sort of like the uh, the Black George Jones, you know, uh, No Show Jones, this sort of thing. Uh, I think I saw something somewhere. Uh, in 1970, 26 out of the the group's 80 gigs are canceled, or you know, Sly just doesn't show up. Basically, uh, the band shows up, Sly doesn't show up. Um, but that was his thing. He thought it was, um, and and the, and the rest of the shows that he didn't cancel normally started extremely late. And but he did that sort of purposefully to sort of get the place to a fever pitch almost before the band took the stage. Everybody's getting antsy, getting a little nervous, you know, one hour ago, not there, two hours ago, not there. And then finally, boom, you know, after the promoters and the, you know, the guys running the venue would be about ready to, you know, rip all their hair out and would watch Sly and then the band would go on and they'd kill it. Uh, but yeah, but his, but his reputation for tardiness and, and for not showing up, it's going to come back to uh, bite him in the butt uh, because there's just lots of promoters, uh, lots of venues that just say, you know, I know he's a good draw and everything like that, but it's not worth the heart, you know, the hassle. And you know, he's probably not going to show up. So why the hell am I going to go through all this, uh, you know, all this work of promoting this show and everything when you know, I, it's a more than 50/50 chance that Sly's not going to be there. The peak of that kind of uh, irresponsible, reckless uh, behavior was the Dick Cavett show. Mm. And and in the book, that's detailed out extensively. Mm. I was able to talk to everybody involved in that. Uh, but it starts out in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, after a show where they are invited to Muhammad Ali's house. And that's a pretty cool deal, you know, <laughs> Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So they were all pretty chuffed about that. And then they get up in the morning in, in their hotel in New York and Sly is not there. He's run out of drugs and doesn't really have any good connections in New York. So he has flown back to Los Angeles to score drugs. He's got a gig booked on the Dick Cavett show. He's already blown off Dick Cavett once or twice. And the word is if he does it again, he's through. So Hamp is in a panic. He's got Sly out in the West Coast and everybody else is in the East Coast. So he calls Bobby Womack. And as he said to me, if I called Bobby Womack, you know how desperate I was. Hmm. And got Womack to wrangle Sly, get him on a plane back to New York. And th th this just gets, you know, more hilarious and more hilarious. I mean, Bub puts Sly and Womack on a helicopter at the airport to send them downtown to do the Cabot show. And then he drives off. But as he drives off, he sees the helicopter turn around and come back. So he goes back and it turns out that the wind in the helicopter was blowing Sly's cocaine around. And Sly had made the helicopter pilot go back. So he could change seats around and do cocaine on his way to the, uh, the Cabot show. Anyway, they get to the Cabot show. Rockstar problems. Up, Rockstar waiting problems. to go on. Dick Cabot sees Sly there. The cameras are on. Cabot says, ladies and gentlemen, Sly and the Family Stone. And Sly looks at Hamp and says, 
I got diarrhea, bub. And he goes to the bathroom. That's, by the way, a uh, common byproduct of adulterated cocaine. Mm. They cut it with baby laxative, and he'd done a bunch of it, and off he has to go. So Dick Cabot's sitting there on camera going, bub, 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 cut to commercial. They come back from commercial, and Sly and the band do a nine-minute version of Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself. They just burn the place down. And then Sly goes to sit and talk with Cavett. He trips on cables going over there. He pulls the tea cozy down over his head. He is so ridiculously high. And all he does is just, just make a fool of himself. You know, <laughs> Dick Cavett. <laughs> all this is very, very available on mm -hmm. YouTube. Yeah, yeah. You can watch this all you want today. But it was incredible embarrassment and, and just, you know, absolute nadir of his public behavior yeah and then um you know like you said after that 69 1969 that peak the uh, the band is really he's really just going to start to push the band aside and really just do everything himself uh with you know some collaborators like you said like ike turner and billy preston and whatnot so there's a riot going on. There's not much of the actual Family Stone on that record. Uh, same thing with Fresh, uh, which comes out in 73, which is another good record. And uh, another record that goes number one goes gold. Uh, you know, the single If You Want Me to Stay, that goes, uh, I think that was a top 20 hit. Um, but by that time, you know, Gregorico's left the band and everyone else... Um, in the recording process, at least, they don't have very much to do. It's all pretty much sly uh, by himself, or um, you know, occasionally a member of the Family Stone uh, doing an overdub here or there, or something like that. But it really becomes a one-man show once he gets like super deep into the into the drug thing. Well, Greg's gone, and then Larry's the next to leave, uh, and. After that, really, you know, the the Cynthia and Jerry, uh, they're, they're you know totally exchangeable with any horn player. Mm -hmm. uh, but the the trademark sound of Sly and the Family Stone is completely disintegrated by uh, Riot Going On. Riot Going On is is a kind of dark masterpiece yeah. uh, that emanates from the deep recesses of Sly's psyche and his sort of creative impulses. Uh, the sound of Riot he was experimenting with on a s series of singles on the Stoneflower label. Mm -hmm. uh, his youngest sister, Vietta, and a couple of her schoolmates in a group called Little Sister. Uh, and what was the, uh, the guy's name? Life and Death and GNA. What's that? Joe Hicks. Uh, and the, a couple other like off beat one off kind of singles that he was experimenting with this really low fi uh, solo recording style that Riot was part of. Uh, Fresh, the subsequent record, was back to playing with a band. That's Rusty Allen on bass and Andy Newmark on drums. Andy'd been um, in Carly Simon's band and was. Uh, turned out to be one of the uh, better drummers of the 70s. He was a 
mm-hmm. but a lot of st- great stuff. Yeah, and I think um, I, I, my mom, my mom's actual first concert was Sly and the Family Stone, and I can't remember where it was. She she passed away last year, so I can't ask her. My dad doesn't remember, but um, it was either in 74 when he played uh, Madison Square Garden and he, he gets married on stage it's this whole big production but uh, was that the only gig they did at the Garden that year in 74 uh, I can't uh, be exact about that uh, Madison Square Garden was uh, a, a place where they played and sold out a m- m- long yeah. run of yeah. concerts they were super popular in New York and they could always be counting on the garden as, as, as a place to pick up a bunch of bucks. However, by the time the wedding took place, I think that the whole thing was starting to move downhill and that the yeah. wedding was an actual promotion device that helped them sell out the garden again. So I think if she didn't see them at the garden, because I probably don't think uh, she saw them in 73, because that was like her freshman year of high school. So I think she probably saw them at radio city in 75 and that was uh, basically yeah that was basically the end of the band she didn't mention not that i recall um you know the theater being only about you know a third full and that sort of thing but she did mention that uh it started extremely late Uh, and cool and the gang wiped the stage with them yeah 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 so i think that might have (laughs) been i think the 70 the the radio city shows must have been uh, one of the ones she saw um that's the one where that's where hamp takes uh rose they're married by that point and tells sly that he's an idiot and he's leaving uh uh, jerry martini had to borrow money to get home Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was just it, it was just over. It was just just ruined. It was it, it was it, it washed up, and and uh, you know it was just wrecked. Yeah. And the 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 worst thing was is nobody cared. I mean nobody even came to the shows. Yeah, yeah. And he'll do a few more solo albums. I mean they're still billed under Sly and the Family Stone, like uh, the Heard You Miss Me, um, Well, I'm Back album. Uh, and then he, uh, I think he moves on to Warner Brothers, I believe. And uh, Oh, don't forget High On You. Oh, yeah, High On You, right? Yep, there's that so one. So he recorded that in uh, CBS Studios in um, was like San 70, Francisco. That was like 75, was like, 76, right? Yeah, a couple yeah. blocks from where I worked at the Chronicle. I used to go down there after work and hang out. And there was this really square engineer, Roy Siegel. He was a great guy, but he was older and he, you know, he was not in on the, 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 the drug scene at all. And, and he was really excited to be working with Sly, really excited. He thought, you know, he was going to get Sly back on, on the, in gear. And he said the interesting thing was that Sly had set up a tent in the studio. So that if he needed some inspiration or some solitude, he could just go in the tent and take a few minutes to himself. And and Roy was telling me this like it was some kind of like, you know, <laughs> creative gesture on Sly's part. He had no idea that the guy was going in there and doing cocaine where he couldn't be seen right yeah. in front of him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, that one comes out. Like I said, Heard You Miss Me, that's like 76. And then he does a couple solo records for... 
Warner Brothers in the I think Warner Brothers in the late seventies, early eighties, and then yeah, they're very that's late. It. Yeah, and then that's it, and then he's just basically a couple of a uh, couple of appearances on other people's records. Mm-hmm. He's on a a, a P Funk record, mm-hmm. uh, the Electric Spanking of War Babies or something like that, and you you you, you can't pick him out. And then uh, one of those Minnesota Minneapolis guys, uh, I'm, I'm I may have his name wrong, Jesse Johnson. He was the guitar player in the time or something mm-hmm. like that. And he uh, 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 he did a, a pretty cool record with Sly. Uh, yeah, crazy, I think it was called. Uh, so there were a couple guest appearances. But, you know, I mean, he was just a, a, a worthless, a washed up drug addict at that point. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, well, I mean, it's a shame no matter who it is that when you get sort of sucked into that life, but especially so just because the dude was so freakishly talented and innovative and, um, and saw music from such a unique perspective, like nobody before or since. Want to know something really wild? Sure. When Sly and the Family Stone were signed to Epic, their manager, David Kaprilek, started a publishing company to publish Sly's songs. Mm-hmm. Do you know what he called it? Daedalus Publishing. <laughs> Daedalus Publishing. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Which one? Uh, Icarus was the one that, that lived, right? Right, yeah. Icarus was... Daedalus the, uh... was the one who flew too close to the sun, melted his wings, and, and, and didn't survive. Correct. That's correct. Daedalus uh, Publishing. Yeah, Icarus is the son of Daedalus. Right. Okay. Oh, wait, no, wait. Is, did Icarus die? Icarus is the one that fell to his death, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Icarus falls to his death. Uh, he, he. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back in my Greek mythology yeah, database. Yeah, this is a while for me, too. Yeah. Uh, Daedalus survived. In any case, yeah. they invoke the myth of flying too close to the sun right at the very beginning of the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, like I said, I've been going through, I was talking a little bit before then, I was listening to the live stuff the other day, but I've been going through and going through the whole sort of uh, Slystone back catalog, man. And those records, you know, after being 50 years old, you know, uh, even like the first album, you know, which um, probably doesn't get its due, I mean, all those records still slap, man. They're still great. You know, they're, uh, they still sound you amazing. Die before you live. Yeah, I mean, they still sound great. No, they're fantastic, life-affirming records. The sounds are really strong and, and powerful, and they were well, well-produced and well-recorded. He knew what he was doing, and he was very conscious and very yeah, cogent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as the, the drugs and ego took over, then, you know, it went off the rails, and, and, and uh, the, the music always was somewhat stable, but you know, by the time you get to small talk, it's 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 pretty insignificant. It's pretty trivial. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's just amazing. Like these days, it's so uh, uh, with the streaming services and everything, like Apple Music or Spotify, you can just have. I mean, I have all these records myself, just in physical copies. But I mean, you can just have everything there at your fingertips. And I was uh, when I was reading the book um, the other day. I was just flipping through like Apple Music and they have videos, uh, you know, Sly and the Family Stone and like live stuff. So you can check out, 
you know, Sly and the Family Stone live on the Ed Sullivan show doing it. And it's it's amazing to me because the band is so uh, hot. Like, if you just watch that, like, I'm thinking of, like, kids today. Uh, if they get it. I don't see, like, I don't get now how uh, rock music or, like, playing in bands has just, like, completely disappeared from, like, what kids like want to do i can't imagine like being a kid and not like seeing that and like being like an artistically uh musical kid and seeing stuff like that and just being like oh shit like i want to do that you know what I mean? like i want to be in a band i want to you know what i mean i want to like a I, I don't i don't get how kids don't see that i mean just like like the beatles or something like you like you see the beatles in like a hard day's night or something it just looks so much fun you know what yeah, I mean? like, yeah yeah i mean but uh i don't know it's just uh fun and cool and, yeah. and you get to wear great clothes and, and, and hang, uh, hang out with your buddies and you know just yep. crack jokes and all that you know i don't know but i don't i don't see how the kids don't uh i don't know rock i mean rock is just uh we're, we're what we would consider a rock and roll or rock music that's um sort of gone it's just never coming back well, i noticed that in the like late 90s that they weren't making rock anymore. All they were making was alternative rock. Mm-hmm. And that was like the the big, you know, forward face of, of white pop music was alternative rock. And, and if you've come to the place where the alternative is the preeminent thing, what happened to then it's, no its longer, Then it's no longer alternative, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, to me, you know, it's like all art movements. There's a bell curve to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts out with the avant-garde uh, adopting ideas that work their way into the mainstream, and all that comes up to a, a peak where then they go back down the backside with repeating ideas and diminishing returns and all that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there's that, not that, that's true of the of of the uh, impressionists school of painting as well as it is the, the sure. history of rock and roll yeah sure uh, there's not uh doesn't seem like there's much of like a white um pop music scene almost so much i mean outside of like you know taylor swift or something like that those kind of people katie perry uh country music, yeah i mean basically i was gonna say country music has sort of just become like the the pop music for like adult white people essentially you know like white white people in like their 30s and up <laughs> sort of you know well the ones between the coast anyway yeah uh the uh, uh the the emergence of uh urban music as the primary mode of pop music in the wake of the hip-hop revolution was kind of unexpected but uh it, it's pervasive and yeah. and you know, somewhere around the beginning of the century, you know, like 90 percent of the stuff on radio was of urban nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we can talk about like how radio has become less significant in the culture. I mean, I've never sure, seen certainly. a medium become more irrelevant. Sure. And, you know, that the effect that had on uh you know the growth of the pop music movement but to me the the real crucial uh uh, transformative era was in the late 70s and 80s when corporations began absorbing all the independent record labels all the motowns and a and yeah 
And the, uh, once that happened, then corporate marketing methods uh, were applied to the product, which, of course, is ridiculous. You know, pop music ain't soap. Uh, and uh, research and development almost completely disappeared, uh, and the, the, the product became less and less interesting. Same thing happened in the movie business, by the yeah. way. But um, the talking heads could not get a record deal today. Probably not. No, I mean, it's just, it seems like music, um, in a way, it's less relevant to young people. Maybe not. Maybe just I just don't know that many young people, or I don't know. But I mean, it doesn't seem relevant in a way that music used to be, you know, at least maybe up to the turn of the century, I guess, or at least through, um, you know, like the early 90s with the Nirvana and the whole alternative movement and then well, the, the, the rise of hip-hop and you know uh the, or... the grunge thing was like rock culture's last gasp and, yeah. and it was kind of pointless and 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 off the uh target anyway uh but uh the 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 music lost its cultural heft yeah and it, it had been born of a of, of a desire for a generation create its own culture and it carried with it so much messaging that was uh you know additional to the uh work it was it, it was just came uh like an appendix or attached mm -hmm. to it in some way and as the music became more and more commercialized that started to shed that that cultural heft uh and and it was replaced by you know technical ability and uh, that kind of um, professionalism that was not re ever really an essential ingredient. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, the other thing Steely I... Steely Dan, you know, like, what was the point of Steely Dan? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I understand the appeal, but what was the point of it? It was antiseptic, it was technically proficient, it was obscure in its meaning, and yet it was, it, it was on, on a level of a technical accomplishment that was unparalleled by anybody else so uh did it connect I, to an audience yes what did it do to the audience did it nourish the audience did it bring some bit of important culture and and communication to their lives i'm not sure I, uh, the music moved from something that was vital and 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 an important network of ideas into something that was merely entertaining yeah I, I try to think of like what's the last song that like everybody knows, you know, but that like had an actual yeah. impact on the culture. Like you could play it, and like everyone knows that song. And I'm like, I'm trying to think. I mean, maybe like "Hey Ya" by Outkast, and that song is almost. Or since you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson popped into my mind. But <laughs> maybe. Here, here's the thing that I uh, a conversation that I bring up sometimes when I'm sitting around with people. Uh, in, in the business, it's like, okay, so tell me, what are the songs of the 21st century that we will be singing 50 years from now, the way we are, the Motown, the Beatles, the Baccarat? Mm -hmm. And that's a, you know, I've, I've, I've taken that up with, with people like L.A. Reid and, and uh, you, you know, 
ma major figures in the business, and they, nobody has a really the same answer. Uh, and it's it's doubtful that there are any songs out there that are going to be remembered for 50 years, as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, uh, put a, a single ladies put a ring on it. Uh, Crazy by Gnarls Barkley. I, I don't know. I mean, these these are some of the things people Happy suggest. Happy by Pharrell I Williams. I can't even remember them now. Yeah. No, I think part of the problem, um, you know, with black uh, most of the, the 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 black musicians that make it big, the rappers and stuff, make, they still sort of come from. Uh, if not poverty, then, you know, sort of a lower middle class background. And the same thing with uh, a lot of the country musicians that make it big. But it seems like the, the white pop singers, uh, the white pop artists that, like, make it today, it just seems like if you go back to, like, the backstory of, like, all these people, like, they come from, like, middle class or, like, upper middle class uh, upbringings. Like, you know, Taylor Swift's parents, like, you know, famously moved from Pennsylvania to Nashville uh, so that she could, like, pursue her career in music. And it's like, well, your parents can only do that. <laughs> you know, you, you can't just, like, up and move, like, halfway across the country unless, like, you're financially incredibly stable. And, you know, or, like, uh, Lady Gaga went to, like, Juilliard and, um, and you know, all these other uh, people you run across, like, you go into their bios and it's like they have, like, one like one or two parents that's like in the professional class, you know, and like, that. and it just seems like, and I'm not saying like rich kids or, uh, you know, or comfortable kids can't like make good art. I mean, like, you know, Graham Parsons is a pretty good example of that one. Um, but it just seems like the more it's been removed from sort of like, regular middle class or like lower middle class backgrounds at least like the white artists it's become like less relevant and there's a reason that like rock has sort of died in that way that uh country hasn't and uh and and black music hasn't you know i think that might i don't know this is something i've been kicking i'm not, out of my I'm not head. sure to tell you the truth that black music hasn't lost uh, a lot of its uh, uh, heft, and country music for sure has become disconnected from its uh, cultural oh, sure. roots. Sure, but it's still, uh, it's, it's but it still has relevance. Music in, there is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, like, but country music still has relevance in a way that regular non-country uh, pop, mu white pop music or rock music doesn't. You know, I mean, it's still, um, it still has a popularity, an extreme popularity, uh, where white rock music just doesn't have anymore. It just has no cachet whatsoever. And I mean, I'm not saying that the country music today is, is I mean, it's as good as country music in the past. It's obviously, you know, there's a lot of the pop country stuff I like, but a lot of it is just derivative. Too many just, processed drums. And yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's no... You know, it's not honky tonk music. We'll put it that way. Um, and uh, but yeah, so it just seems like um, the more uh, it's the more that like you almost it, it seems like with white pop music, you almost have to be from a background of some sort of comfort or I hate to use the word privilege, but uh, something of that sort to be able to like make it. 
uh, nowadays, you know, and I mean, there's still people that, you know, slip through the cracks and, uh, you know, guys like, uh, uh, Billy strings or something like that. But, um, but, it, but he's not really, that's more of like a jam band audience. That's not, not really big, like commercial appeal, but it just seems like that has taken some of the, um, the, the heft out of the music in a way. I don't know. Well, we could presume that uh, in today's society that that you have to have some degree of uh, financial security in order to pursue a career in the arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and the cultural impetus is, is much less. You know, in the 60s, Becoming a musician was a heroic enterprise, and it no longer has that kind of status. Uh, it really is much more of a, um, a pastime, and mm-hmm. people that wish to uh, get involved professionally, um, you, you know, the, the, the motivations are, are, are less intense, I think. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I can see where all these cultural things move that in, in that way. To me, I, ju- I just think the art, the, the school of art sort of wound out its string and uh, all that um, in general uh, ne- needed to be said has been said uh, that the, I, I remember driving around with my kid. And I mean, this is a while ago now, like 20 years ago. Um, and, and the radio's on and this record comes on the radio and she reaches over and turns it up. And I think, wow, yeah, man. I, I loved that sound the first time I heard it, when the Velvet Underground did it. <laughs> and she was listening to the Strokes. Mm. And the Strokes were like, you know, oh, they were like the generation they Velvet were like, Underground. They were like the hot band for like a hot minute in 2001, 2002. They were supposed yeah, to be like they the were just a, they were just an imitation of Velvet Underground. It was just like a, 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 a filtering of, of that of those ideas and there was there was nothing particularly fresh or novel about it but it still had that great appealing sound that that first struck me when I heard uh, you know uh, I'm waiting for the man mm-hmm. yeah I don't know it's like I said you can there all this stuff is available uh, obviously in ways you know when I was even when I was a kid in the late 80s, early 90s and stuff, when you're trying to figure stuff out about bands and, uh, you know, there were there was no internet, there was no uh, was no Spotify and all this stuff, so you had to, like, actually track shit down and, you know, yep. spend, spend money <laughs> to, like, listen to records and stuff like that. Um, it, but just, it just blows my mind. I would have loved to have had something like Spotify or, or Apple Music or something like that to have, like, the entire history of basically popular music and even classical music like just at your fingertips at your command um and just all these things that are available and just not just uh the the audio but the video that's available and all this stuff and all this stuff is available to kids and i don't know i just i i just (laughs) like i said i hopefully maybe like 10 years down the road or something like that when these kids get a little bit older and like grow up that you know they'll have like latched on to some of this stuff you know like hendrix or it seems to be uh uh have lodged itself in the culture as a kind of uh a body of literature 
and that you can't get to a majority age uh, in uh, America without experiencing the Who, Led Zeppelin, uh, Bob Marley, uh, all these sort of fundamental touchstones mm-hmm. uh, of, of this music's originality. They, they seem to survive uh, in, in a... I can't believe uh, how the Beatles loom over the culture to this day, uh, 50 plus years later. Yeah, I mean, well, it's pretty obvious why it survives because it's great. You know, it's uh, it's I mean, it's still, you know, you listen to something like Tomorrow Never Knows on Revolver. That still sounds fresh and inventive. 50 years later and or even like something like nirvana with like smells like teen spirit or something like that song comes on like the radio and it, the the power well, they, of... they they don't make movies look like casablanca anymore either <laughs> no that's true no that's true um but anyway yeah we could discuss the uh the, the uh downfall of or the decline well, of as, all the, as the art for... form grows you see it accumulates both information, vocabulary, and self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what you do with that determines how the movement grows or shrinks. Yeah. And, and it, it seems kind of inevitable that the, the ideas get mined out and you end up with diminishing returns, people that are trying old shop-worn ideas and there, there are no real new rich veins to mine. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Enough on that. I've kept you long enough. Uh, we've gone over an hour. So uh, I can I... talk about this kind of crap all day. It's <laughs> yeah, what I, I know. do. I know. And, you I know. know, I could too. Uh, I, 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 I just hope that uh, people will share our interest enough to like you know, to find this illuminating to any degree. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm with you. But so last question before I let you go. You know, the one I asked you with the last book, and I'll ask you with this one, too. Um, you know, basically, what would you like the audience to get on, get out of this book on on Sly and the Family Stone? You know, what's the one thing you'd want them to take so away from it? So it's an amazing book to me, and I, and I say that with all due modesty because I really don't write much in the book. It's tape recordings and transcripts that I pieced together of other people telling me their story. So it's really their book. And they're very brave and very uh, uh, forthright and vivid in their recollections. So the book, which, by the way, takes about two and a half hours to read, Mm -hmm. is just an absolute shock to the system. Uh, It's like an amusement park ride where, you know, you slowly get to the apex and then down you go. And it's terrifying, it's exhilarating, it's scary. And I always tell people that I don't recommend reading this late at night because you will not be able to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, I knew how Sly ended up and I knew, like, the general outlines of the story Um you know, before well, you didn't know book. about the pit bull. No, I didn't know about the, I didn't know about the pit bull and uh, <laughs> basically having the baby's head in its mouth and, uh, you know, Sly Jr. 
Um, that was pretty uh, hairy. Um, no, just the I I knew about the decline and fall, and uh, the general parameters of that whole thing, but I didn't really know the the warts and all story of it. And uh, like you said, yeah, it's harrowing, and it's just uh, uh, it's just sad because it was just such a tremendous tremendous uh, human. So I took a, I took talented. a meeting yeah. with a couple of. Uh, uh, Hollywood movie producers uh, about this, and 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 it was a, a time when a number of years ago uh, where there were different uh, uh, new movies out, and and the the guy starts the meeting by saying, "Well, tell me, Mr. Selvin, why this is just not another story about a black man who takes too many drugs and ruins his life." I said, "Oh, that's easy because this is a comedy." And they look at me like I'm crazy, like, what? I go, yeah, yeah, a dark comedy, like Boogie Nights. Mm. And everybody at the meeting took a note on their yellow pad at that point. I know they all wrote down Boogie Nights. And uh, <laughs> it, it was like, okay, now we're on the same page. This is not a tragedy to me. This is a deranged, dark comedy. And if you don't laugh out loud, you walk away with a deep sense irony yeah but hollywood i mean they like all their movies at least to some degree to have a little bit of redemption in them at uh, by the end of the by the end of the flick and it doesn't seem my like theory on that was that uh it was going to be a, a buddy picture between hamp and sly and that hamp was going to start out in a morally inferior position since he was a, a pimp and Sly was this young school kid, and that over the course of the movie, they would reverse positions, and at the end, when he takes Rose and leaves Sly in the bedroom in the, hall, in the New York hotel, he has assumed the morally superior position, okay. and he is redeemed. All right, there you go. That's, that's that, the... that was my pitch to the Hollywood guys. I, Some I like of that. them liked it. I liked it, yeah, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah otherwise, if, I mean, if it's just... if. If you're just concentrating entirely on Sly, then it's just like, oh, uh, you know. There is no redemption. Yeah. The, to me, the, the the moral dialogue between Sly and Ham was an, an engine of the book's mm -hmm. whole being. And, and, and you can tell as you read the book that, that Ham has some respect for Sly, but mostly has contempt for him. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, um, yeah. You you get the sense. I mean, it's not it's contempt, and there's some uh, with the the at least with like the band members too that there's uh, uh, just the sense of betrayal uh, they all sort of felt, and just uh, band uh, members were cruelly exploited, and they 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 act very much like victims of trauma. Mm. Hamp was not traumatized. So he sort of stands aside of this and looks and says, that fool, you see what he did there? Mm. Whereas the other people were really the victims of his reckless behavior. Hamp was nobody's victim. Yeah. All right, well... Uh, I mean, remember, Hamp, was the, uh, Hamp and JB tried to push that guy out the window at the 32nd floor of the Sony building. Oh, when they took the meeting with the... Uh 
the, uh, you do. the guy from uh, Trenton, right? Gentlemen, the, please, gentlemen, you know. <laughs> the, promote, the promoter from Trenton, wasn't it? Yeah, he was from Trenton, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, anyway. All right, well, uh, before we go, is there anything uh, else you want to, besides the book you want to plug, anything else you're working on, any appearances, any of that sort I'm of stuff? I'm always working on something. I've got a great book coming out next year of uh, photographs by Chris Strockwitz of our Hooli Records, who started recording uh, vernacular music in 1960 in, in, in uh, Texas, you know, recorded hundreds of blues, country, and, 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 you know, regional musicians, and took photographs the whole time. Mm. And so we have a book of his photos coming out called Down Home Music on Chronicle Books next year. It's amazing. You know, Lightning Hopkins in some Dallas beer joint in 1959, Clifton Chenier in some Bayou nightclub, and, yeah, you know, yeah. Fred McDowell playing in his front yard in Mississippi. Amazing stuff. So always got stuff going on. Thanks for asking me. Come, you know, we'll come, when it comes out, we'll come back and talk some more. Sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Aruli's, uh, that's a, if there are people who, who are sort of music freaks like myself, it, uh, might not be much that you guys out there listening, but, uh, Arhuli's one of the good ones, man. I mean, not just the people you mentioned, but, uh, like Big Mama Thornton, uh, shit, who, uh, Jesse Fuller, Oral Hooker, uh, Charlie Muscle, right? Country of, music, yeah. Mexican music, Zydeco, uh, bluegrass, Cajun shit, yeah, you know, everything. just everything. Yeah, yeah. Tejano yeah, music. Chris Rock yeah, Chris he's really one of the most important musicologists, folklorists of our time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, yeah, cool. Nice looking forward to that. Going strong. All right, cool. Yeah, really looking forward to that one. So, absolutely, when it's out, we'll uh, we'll have you back on for that one. But um, anyway, yeah, the book today that we've been talking about, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, an oral history. Uh, check this out. This book is uh, uh, <laughs> really, really eye-opening. Um, <laughs> it's just a, a, a fantastic uh, oral history, um, depressing in a way, or in a way. So, like you said, don't read it before you go to sleep. Read it in the read it in the daylight hours. Uh, but uh, highly, highly entertaining piece of work. Uh, recommended for everybody out there. Again, the book Sly and the Family Stone: An Oral History. And the author, uh, Mr. Joel Selvin. So, uh, uh, Joel, thank you again for coming back thank on the you. podcast and uh, talking Sly and the Family Stone and other shit with me. And uh, we'll do we'll do it again next year. Excellent. Thank All right, you. Thanks. No problem. Take it easy. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five star review and sharing with friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's t b e n s o n at heartland.org. And uh, for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the podcast. You can reach out to us there, too, if you have any questions, comments, or you know, book suggestions, any of that sort of stuff. Uh, so, you know, give us a follow, uh, send us a DM, all that kind of stuff. Um, our, what, what is it? Ill Books. At Ill Books, I-L-L Books, is the, uh, podcast, or is the uh, Twitter handle. So, again, check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.